Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are going to continue our March Mental Health Book Club on the book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Today, we are going to be talking about chapters 7 through 12. Uh, if you haven't read through that yet, you might want to hit pause and go back and get through that first because we're going to be talking about the content of that. But as usual, we're going to hop in with initial reactions, uh, at least for me. I'll go ahead and start. It was a, uh, I would say, a heavier section to read as far as like the content, the uh, case examples and things like that. However, from a personal standpoint of understanding, um, and I'll get more into it later, but like attachment styles and how attachment uh, influences how we experience and how we respond to trauma. But also there were a lot of like aha moments where I started to think about people on my caseload, you know, because I'm a therapist, like thinking about people on my caseload who have experienced trauma and how basically the examples that were being given in the book like made me think, oh my goodness, now I have to approach. It like gave me a bunch of ideas on how to kind of like re-up what I'm doing in therapy. So I enjoyed the section, but it was also, it felt uh, like my brain worked really, really, really hard to get through it. So um, I'm interested in what y'all's take on this was. So like you said, it was kind of heavy, but um, I think it set a, a good foundation for a lot of the things that probably needed to be talked about. The fact for so long that people were in denial about these things going on, that people were able to have traumatic flashbacks and all this other stuff is kind of crazy and lets you know how far they've come. So it's also funny seeing the DSM and hearing you talk about it from time to time, hearing them fight about it in this section was kind of entertaining. I'm going to add some stuff, uh, some insights I got about the DSM from reading this as well. Um. For me, um, I didn't get through all of the reading. Um, I only got through like a few other chapters, but um, I may have said like in the past or in the last podcast, like my um, undergrad degree in psychology. So like reading about like attachment and then the um, studies that they did with like the kids who like grew up in like, um, like abusive households or like where like they're parents were dismissive and like going back to like see what they were like in adulthood I'm like oh yes I remember talking about this in school so it like kind of brought back like some of um what I even like the real world like application of this because obviously like when you study psychology you're like taking these different developmental uh like classes like I I remember doing the full range I think I was like one class short of like the minor in development or something because I did like the prenatal and childhood I did adolescent I did adulthood and aging so I did like all the developmental courses and I found that so fascinating but I I guess I wasn't expecting I mean if you think about it like trauma often for a lot of people starts at a very young age before you're fully like know who you are. But it was interesting how like you see all of these little like pop culture, like little survey tests on the internet and stuff like that to de- decide what attachment style you are. And you hear a lot about it on like social media and things. But to see, I think there's four types that I caught. Um, they're 
you know, depending on who you talk to, there's more or less, but it was just interesting to see how they kind of break down and how they made the connections with like, uh, if you have this style, this is how you will probably respond to a trauma um, and how what your healing journey might look like. So yes, we'll definitely get into that. I'm interested in seeing what uh, notes you took, Whitney. I guess I'll start with the one. I'm not going to give a ton of the specific examples because very triggering some of the examples that were given here, but they did uh, these like, so everyone, I'm, I'm most people have heard of like the worst, the way I pronounce this is probably not correct. Roar, roar, It's how I say ours. So I don't, I can't say it correctly, but those ink blot tests basically where you, um, you look at it and you interpret it. So everyone's kind of probably heard of those or seen it in some sort of movie or something like that before. But um, they talk on page, uh, I think it was the beginning of the first chapter, like uh, 109 to 110 about these like neutral image studies. And so I want to read a little section of it just to kind of show some of the insights that were gained. So it's uh, the study that they did was kind of comparing children who are from traumatized environments to those who come from like relatively uh, well-adjusted ones and kind of to you'll get to see kind of what the different outcomes are. So, quote, the children who had not been abused still trusted in an essentially benign universe. They could imagine ways out of bad situations. They seemed to feel protected and safe within their own families. They also felt loved by at least one of their parents, which seemed to make a substantial difference in their eagerness to engage in schoolwork and to learn. The responses of the clinic children were alarming. The most innocent images stirred up intense feelings of danger, aggression, sexual arousal, and terror. These images were not selected because they had some hidden meaning that sensitive people could uncover. They were ordinary images of everyday life. We could only conclude that for abused children, the whole world is filled with triggers. As long as they can imagine only disastrous outcomes to relatively benign situations, anybody walking into a room, any stranger, any image on a screen or on a billboard might be perceived as a harbinger of catastrophe. End quote. Uh, two of the images, I, I mean, obviously, this is a podcast, so you can't really see, but two of the images, one, I want to, I, I can't be 100% sure because it's in black and white, but it's basically like, uh, I would say it's probably in the 70s somewhere, this like a uh, black man who's like underneath the family car, like, I guess, doing some probably an oil change or something like that. And it looks like his son is like talking to him. And then there's like a little girl holding a hammer, like a little bit further back. Um, and just kind of the, you know, if someone were to look at the, um, the, the kids looked at the images, like the traumatized kids were like, oh, yeah, that girl's about to bash her dad's brains in, like with the hammer. Whereas, you know, the, the kids who weren't from abusive homes, you know, they had a completely like uh, kind of innocent kind of interpretation of that. Like, and then the other one was like of a just a side image of like a, a pregnant woman. They create these stories uh, based off of these neutral images. And I think it's it's pretty telling as to the, you know, because this book is obviously called The Body Keeps the Score. So I just found that really interesting. I, I hope it made sense, listener to the podcast, the example I'm giving. Obviously, I don't want to like read the entire like section, but between those neutral images and comparing like a group of abused or neglected children to a group of uh, children who had 
your basic markers of like a nurturing, supportive home environment, the way that kids would interpret the same neutral images were quite different. And I just found it interesting. What did y'all think of that? Um, yeah, I found it like interesting too, like especially uh, the picture with the kids um, help the dad fix the car. Like I would have never put two and two together that, Oh, the daughter is going to bash her dad's head in with a hammer. When I read that, I jumped. <laughs> I'm thinking, like, that is a reach. <laughs> like, to me, it just looks like a dad is fixing the family car. The son is holding, like, a light or something like that. And the daughter looks like she's waiting for daddy tell me to give him the hammer like it just looks like a, a cute little picture for me the first thing i thought about was this like six-year-old kid and <clears throat> that went to school and shot his teacher because i'm just like i wonder what kind of trauma he went through that made him possibly do something like that is this something in his case file that they would have found that links him to some of the same type of situations like is he trying to hurt people before he thinks they're going to hurt him or What's the situation? So getting into things like this, it kind of gives you a different perspective from being like, oh, no, I can't believe this kid did that. to like, did somebody do something to this kid for him to react the way he's acting? Yeah, that actually happened in the area that uh, Nita lives. My wife was telling me that she heard, I guess, an update on the case or whatever. And I guess they're not going to move forward with any sort of like consequences for or like you know, kind of the kid that shot his teacher, you know. Uh, and of course, that I'm sure for those who work in education uh, is kind of unsettling. I mean, even at my wife's school, and I want to say it was last week, actually, it was at the start of the week. Uh, they have this thing, I forget what it's called, because the kids all have like these Chromebooks uh, that the school assigns. And so there's software on it that Basically, if certain things are triggered or whatever, a report goes out and like administrative people can like look into it and see what kids are talking about and stuff. I want to say that there was some sort of group chat going on, not even on the devices, but it came to someone's attention where someone was talking about like bringing a gun to school and uh, like a child was talking about it. And uh, the school that my wife works at is in the middle of Chesterfield County, and it happens to be in a particularly, like, really conservative, like, pocket. It's very believable that, I mean, we just saw this one kid, you just bring a gun, and, and not only that, he the, the kid who you had, uh, Nita had mentioned, brought bullets to school beforehand. It was like, it, it was, it was documented, right? And the school was just negligent. And so, um you know, for that to happen not that long ago, and then to hear this, I'm like, geez, like, anybody who, first of all, has a child in the school system, or has knows somebody who works in education, it's just like, really, and we're, we're all at this point, we're jaded to school shootings and things like that. It's just really weird. But bringing it back to like the content of this book, it was interesting because they get into like diagnoses and we'll talk more about the DSM-5 and kind of some of the insights there, but there was a proposal, the current version of the DSM-5, which stands for Di Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or something. I don't know the full, full name of it. DSM-5, basically the psychiatry slash therapist Bible. 
uh, has anything that could possibly be wrong with mental health in there. Um, it's currently in its fifth edition. They just did a text revision. So it's called the DSM-5-TR. But what the author of this book was saying is that when the when they were like getting ready to release the fifth one, first of all, he said it was rushed um, and that they were kind of in a hurry to get it out. And I like that the author kind of pointed out that there was a financial kind of motive behind it because apparently that book grosses like I think about a hundred million per edition or something like that, uh, which is a lot of money for a academic textbook or a book in general. Um, and then they had mentioned that a lot of the diagnoses that are in the DSM-5 are kind of unnecessary. He called them, what did he call it? Not, I th- he might have said pseudoscience diagnoses. Uh, and he specifically pointed out oppositional defiant disorder, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, and uh, intermittent explosive disorder, which... Um, I found very interesting because he said they also, he actually wrote the author and probably his team or whatever, wrote a letter to the APA, the American Psychological Association, who puts out the DSM, and basically said, no, you need to include something about, let me find the exact wording of it, uh, a diagnosis for developmental trauma. And if there was a diagnosis for developmental trauma, you wouldn't need all of these other, quote, they're actually under in this the DSM. They're called behavioral disorders, uh, or um, I think it might be under. They're called behavioral or disruptive disorders. Is the section? But that was a moment for me that I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like all of these kids. And uh, Whitney, you brought it up last uh, time about like all the kids like who are poor. Uh, like on Medicaid and stuff like that, how they're over medicated and like how the um, the majority of the medications and the diagnoses and stuff like that are in those populations. A lot of my experience when I started in the field of mental health was working with the Medicaid population. And my first job out of grad school was being a uh, therapeutic day treatment counselor in a middle school. So I wasn't a school counselor. I was like a behavioral counselor like from an outside agency working in the school, basically given a caseload of like the troubled kids or whatever. And all of them had those intermittent explosive disorder, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder diagnoses. And at the time, you know, fresh out of grad school, of course, as you know, further I get away from grad school, the more I realize like you almost have to kind of be intuitive with this kind of thing versus going by the book because the DSM-5 is very flawed and so is uh, counseling theory and just anything that purports itself to be exact or um, you know uh, it could be problematic so putting all these labels on kids but when I read the part where there was a proposed diagnosis for developmental trauma it like hit me like a ton of bricks and I'm like wow if we had that it would make so much more sense and we would just because he talks about how a diagnosis uh, informs treatment, but if we're calling it like a, a di- like if you don't even know anything about psychology and you hear okay oppositional defiant disorder, he literally said it's like oh I'm not it's basically like a, I don't like you I'm not going to listen to you, and the kids who had those diagnoses the teachers treated them exactly like that oh he's oppositional defiant he's not going to 
whatever. So basically, I'm not going to work harder to teach him. I'm not going to, you know, whereas if we were saying, no, little John Zell has developmental trauma and give a quick backstory of like, you know, he was neglected from age this to this or uh, had experienced this at this age. Can you imagine the difference in how you would approach a person? And think too, like, it's all Black people in this particular um, Zoom right now. If we're dealing with law enforcement, right, and someone responds to a police call and they say, oh, um, we're uh, you're responding to a call um, and uh, this particular address has a history of complaints about uh, an oppositional and defiant uh, tenant as opposed to be on notice that the tenant in this apartment that you're responding to does have a history of trauma, right? Like if you, like the way that we label these things directly, like honestly, we obviously know that law enforcement is not mental health treatment, but if you just take it out of the mental health sphere and look at how regular like occupations or just a regular person who doesn't know much about like mental health or treatment, would look at something just based on context clues, how we're going to treat people is going to be very different. So when I heard that they proposed developmental trauma and that it was kind of like brushed off as like, nah, we don't have room for that. It's not necessary. I was actually kind of angry. So I'm interested. I know, um, Nita, I don't think you have a psychology background, but I'm interested uh, in the perspectives from both of y'all, like one from somebody who studied psychology and one from someone who has a different like background. I'm interested in, to what y'all think about what we learned about diagnosis from that standpoint. I think for me, like I understand from like volunteering in different like elementary schools, how some kids are treated. Uh, I know for a big population, uh, it was the English as a second language. So those kids get neglected so bad because a lot of times the teachers can't communicate directly with the parents. They're using the kids to be the go-between. So some of the teachers are not going to figure out why the kid is not responding. They're not paying attention. They don't understand what you're talking about. This is not what they speak at home. So unfortunately, these kids will get held back. They get put in classes that are slower moving because they feel like these kids are not smart and once you label a kid unfortunately in the public school system it tends to stay with them and if this kid is able to understand basically what you're saying about them how far does that take them in life like are they just gonna be like okay well they tell me i'll never be able to do this because of this why should i try so i think in that aspect it kind of makes it tough and i think also and dealing with my job, the way we cover different things, like in the news article, obviously you're never going to say somebody probably suffered from mental health issues because, you know, you got to respect their privacy. But some ways that we handle things, it can't be good for people's mental health. It just can't be the way we're always like we want to get it on air first. We don't care if some of the the facts are not completely right as long as we're the first to get it. So I think it's just a matter of. A better diagnosis with, well, sounding diagnosis would make it better instead of having all these little individual comorbidities and all this other stuff that they're putting in there. To, it's kind of rough. Um, I have this quote highlighted. Um, and it says, a psychiatric diagnosis has serious consequences. Diagnosis informs treatment and getting the wrong treatment can have disastrous effects. 
Also, a diagnostic label is likely to attach to people for the rest of their lives, which is what you were saying just now, Anita. And it has a profound influence on how they define themselves. And I know, Tronzo, like you always like told me, like I have an anxiety disorder, but you're always one to tell me you're still weak. Yes, you live with anxiety, but you're still you. And I think, you know, if we can start to have like those conversations with people when they're diagnosed, that might change like they're thinking a little bit like you are still you. You just, you know, have this diagnosis and you have to treat these symptoms. Whereas, you know, someone who has, I don't know, like a broken leg, you're not broken leg with you just have a broken leg, you know what I mean? Um, so I think I think that could definitely go a long way if we tr- start to change like the narrative a little bit with that. Uh, in the book too, they, they gave examples of, he said like people would come into, you know, appointments or whatever and say, well, I'm bipolar, you know, and I think we see a lot of that, uh, especially, you know, as far as like media is concerned, social media, even like production, like Hollywood productions and stuff like mis like misrepresentation of diagnoses, um, but also obviously for the for things to sell, it has to be sensational and stuff like that. So when you get someone in real life who say gets a, oftentimes you will never see, cause there's most people don't know there's two types of bipolar. There's bipolar one and bipolar two. Most people have never in their life seen a person with bipolar one disorder. It's relatively rare. The, uh, it's a very, uh, it's a more extreme version. Uh, whereas bipolar two is kind of more uh, common. Um, but even then the diagnosis is very subjective. Um, because while the DSM and, you know, counseling training, master's degree programs, even undergrad, like people who get psychology degrees and stuff, they teach you that it's a, if it meets, if it checks all these, because it's truly a manual that's written. Like if you have four out of however many of these symptoms, it justifies the diagnosis. It's really written to kind of, I was like, oh, I checked enough boxes. I can have this thing. And then it, it it's, I feel like it's a little reckless. Um, in my own therapy practice, I, uh, I have a private pay model, so I don't have to um, bill insurance directly. But when I did work for agencies that used insurance and stuff like that, I had to give a diagnosis in order to get paid. And that's where a lot of my, like when I was talking about working in the middle school and stuff like that, they had to have a real or not a real, but a like a DSM-5 code diagnosis. And certain programs make you, they'll even like give you a menu where it's like, it has to be major depressive disorder has to be schizophrenia it has to be like they actually will tell you we'll pay for your service if this person is diagnosed with these things so what do you know everyone in the program happens to meet those diagnoses uh things and i actually i worked as a clinician for agencies um this is why i work for myself because i don't work well with others apparently but i i got laid off twice in 2000 Let's see. Was it 2018? Yeah, I got laid off twice that year from two different counseling agencies. They said it was because of 
you know, they didn't have enough uh, revenue, you know, they give a little reason or whatever. It was always after I refused to put, because as a resident in counseling at the time, uh, I was able to put my credentials on like documentation to submit to get someone approved for a service or something. Only certain people with a certain like education and experience level could do that. And they basically hired me because they wanted someone with a credential to say, hey, um, Whitney has uh, schizoaffective disorder um, and therefore meets the criteria for the service. And meanwhile, I come in and I'm like, no, this this is just a, a child who's throwing tantrums. They don't have they don't have a uh, dysregulate like they're not oppositional defiant they have uh they're they're telling me right now they behave this way because of this reason why don't we get them some therapy they wanted it to be approved for this more expensive more intensive more whatever service and when i wouldn't write my because you got to write these long-winded like reports to submit to insurance to say this is why you basically have to plead a case for why they need to approve the claim and I wrote mine in a way that was honestly saying, like, these are the symptoms I observe. Uh, based on my observations, they don't meet the Medicaid criteria for this. And of course, the agency's pissed at me because they're like, we're paying you all this money. Why are you writing it this way? And I'm like, what do you want me to do, lie? And so oftentimes, uh, my report would, you know, magically be modified and someone who else had the credential would add some things to it and... Magically, I would see that client in services later on, you know, um, and it, and I would go back because I'm nosy and I would go back and look at how the thing was written and just paragraphs and paragraphs of things were added in. And it's funny uh, because I would also see how they basically copied and pasted from somebody else's and they forgot to change the name and things like it was bad. Um, so I saw like a lot of fraud, but basically they would they would present it as this child is the worst of the worst. If you don't. If you don't let us get services, you know, if you don't approve to pay for these services, this person's going to end up in jail or hurt somebody or whatever. Like they really you basically have to create a, a case for insurance that this is the worst human being ever. And you're trying to save them. Like that's how a lot of this uh, diagnosis, especially for behavioral things goes. But I, you know, like when I said it hit me like a ton of bricks, when I look back, I'm like, if we had a legitimate diagnosis, say, for uh, developmental trauma, and people gave that the respect and the understanding that it deserved, we wouldn't have to put all these labels on kids. Because it said in the book, too, these kids are making it to their 20s with, like, 12 different diagnoses. Because it's basically, like, whoever they sit in front of is going to throw a different label at them. And I've been in many cases where people will come in with their list of diagnoses and a clinician will just roll that diagnosis right on over, not even pick up a book or nothing, you know, or ask the person, like, what have you been through? What, it, where, where, why do you, why, where is this diagnosis coming from? It's really weird. And I think if we just simplified it and stopped focusing so much on the label and focus on the fact that these are people who have experiences, like, I like how he breaks down the nature versus nurture. Um, I think most of us can kind of grasp that concept, nature being your genetics, nurture being your environment, and how they kind of work together to create the people that we are. I think if we simplified it, and of course, our broken healthcare system and 
insurance system. And we talked about this last time. Most of the systems that we have in this uh, country of ours are incredibly broken and inadequate for providing care for people. But um, if we brought it back to basics and just focused on humanity, I think we would probably be in a much better place. I just said a long-winded kind of little spiel. So I definitely want y'all to add some insight to that. When you were talking, I was thinking about like people who have like the laundry list of um, diagnoses. And I was wondering and thinking about that other example from last week's episode um, where we had talked about um, heavy uh, antipsychotic use in like lower income communities. And I was thinking if these folks have all these diagnoses or incorrect diagnoses, are there medications adequate? Are people on medicate medications that they don't necessarily need to be on or like contributing to um, folks being over medicated or, you know what I mean? Or just drugged, so to speak. I've seen it all the time. Um, I see that I don't, I don't work in community-based counseling anymore, uh, for that reason. Um, I even, as I was starting my practice, I worked in a inpatient, uh, like hospital setting. And basically, you know, when you go to quote the psych ward, um, which again, I'm not shitting on that as a service, like sometimes, especially people of color, their first interaction with mental health services is when they've are in a crisis and they go to the ER because that that's that's the that's their first access point to mental health care and they end up in a psych ward. However, oftentimes when you go there, it's just being drugged and pushed through, and your insurance is being heavily billed. It's a it's a business model, right? Some people's lives are saved that way, which I would not knock any day. You know. Um, but for a lot of people, they're actually traumatized by it because you got people who are severely traumatized people going in there. And then you're, you've got people who are working the system. You've got people who do not belong at that level of care, but they've been pushed through and stuff like that. But pretty much everybody there is going to be prescribed medication unless you know better to deny it. And I can't speak to the whole field of psychiatry, but as a person with a anxiety disorder who has tried uh, their fair share of, you know, medications and over the years by people who probably weren't that qualified to even prescribe it in the first place and have had some adverse reactions and stuff like that. I know I've been either under medicated, mismedicated, and my my particular set of symptoms is not to the point where I'm going to end up, say, in the criminal justice system or anything like that, but just from my own experiences, but also like having worked in, you know, community mental health with like adolescents and things like that. So many times, in fact, I had kids who flat out told me my mom thinks I'm taking this Adderall and I'm not because uh, they know, they know their bodies. Um, I think there's a lot of autonomy that's taken away from young people when basically parents are at the end of their ropes. They're like, I'm going to take you to the doctor and figure out what's wrong with you because they don't know better. And then they get these pills and they're like, I don't like the way this makes me feel. Um, but you've done nothing about the fact that the uncle is coming over and messing with you at night. You know, you've done nothing about the fact that 
you've got a single parent who uh, you're a, you're a latchkey kid who um, may be exposed to dangers in the neighborhood. Like none of the environments are being changed. You're just changing the nature, which is the the physical being uh, via the medication. The the but even then, these medications oftentimes are very inadequate. Like. As a person who also, I talked about it last week on the podcast, like I just started a new medication to add to my other one. I take uh, a medley of mental health medications uh, to manage my anxiety. That shit ain't all that I need to to handle my anxiety. I got to do like 12 other things, you know, to keep myself, you know, functioning, exercise, uh journaling therapy like i have all these different coping skills and things that i've like amassed to handle it and it still doesn't make the thing go away but the level of care and understanding that i have obviously far exceeds what the average say person on medicaid you know uh would probably get so yeah to answer that was a long-winded answer but obviously i'm very passionate about this and it's that yeah, oftentimes people are over-medicated and I've talked with kids. That's the thing. You build rapport with people, they'll tell you their story. And they're like, yeah, that medication makes me feel like I'm a zombie. It makes me feel like I'm not myself. And quite frankly, if a medication makes you detach from who you really are, I can only speak for myself. There have been times where I'm on an anxiety medication that makes me feel like I'm not myself. I will talk to my doctor and safely come off of that medication. I'd rather have a couple more panic attacks than to feel like I'm not myself. Um, so it's kind of like we have to feel figure out how to treat people symptoms in a holistic way. We talked about that last time and in the Prince Harry uh, uh, set of episodes. But we also have to remember not to take away people's humanity while we're trying to treat the symptoms so that's my long-winded winded answer but very good question whitney you had something nita all i was gonna say is i wonder how many doctors are getting like kickbacks from the pharmaceutical companies for prescribing them though because that's also a big problem with all types of medical stuff that oh i mean we see the commercials on tv all the time they're like oh ask your doctor ask your doctor like if your doctor is not volunteering that you probably need this why are you just gonna go and be like hey i saw this commercial it said i probably should ask you about this what do you think it's kind of weird like why are we pushing it so hard and then the list of side effects that they list is insane i'm just like is that worse than the problem you're already having because if it's not do you really want anal leakage to solve something like i mean it just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense sometimes that's that's the term of the day, anal leakage. <laughs> um, you are correct, and and the the list of side effects is, um, of course, you know you got to figure. They always say your doctor uh, prescribes this. You know, it says it right on the bag and on the um, the in the little pamphlet that comes with medication. It's like, uh, please understand that your doctor has assessed that it's kind of like a passing the blame that something goes wrong, but it, it's kind of like the benefits that this drug can have for you have been determined to outweigh the possible side effects or whatever, you know? And, um, but you're correct, Nita, like these things are very like, um, it's a, I, 
I took a whole course in undergrad on the pharmaceutical industry, but it's a like you've heard the term big pharma. It's a like there are corporations. It, look at look at your you know look at the news or look at your um, stock market app or whatever. There these companies that you see commercials for on TV, they're publicly traded companies. Like they. Th- the profits are being made off of the fact that people are paying for these medications. And not only that, the ones that are on commercials are insanely expensive. If you see a commercial for it on TV, even with insurance, I bet you it costs a grip. And I know that because I uh, currently take one of those medications and it is, while it works, it's great. It is uh, insanely expensive. And and so there is very much a uh, capitalism uh, component to all of this as well. And to what you said, Nita, about you're wondering if people get kickbacks, absolutely, they do. See, here I am spilling all the tea. Actually, come for me, people. If you got something to say, I, I got receipts. They used to cater when I worked at the hospital in the hospital setting. Uh, there was one rep. Uh, they would come and cater. You know, uh, all of us like clinicians. They would like bring in, and, and sometimes several times in a day, we'd have different people coming in, bring in, uh, dropping off like catered meals and stuff like that, so that they could pass out their cards and pamphlets and things like that. Um, I there. You could. There are whole books written on this. Doctors will be given like vacations, but really they're going. They attend like a a little a meeting about a particular drug and something like that, and they're given like you know samples and things like that. But yeah, doctors will be uh, paid uh, on paid vacations by these organizations. Uh, there's a lot of corruption in it, so they don't really talk he doesn't really talk that much about it in here but again i'm i'm being long-winded with these answers but we have a small group today so we got time but yes uh there are kickbacks uh as you said in healthcare in general but especially you know in, from my observations with the the mental health side of things too and you know uh i think anybody with who's ever like understood like capitalist like corruptions and things like that um might be a little leery of like even like talking to someone about their mental health or uh, medication or something like that. They're like, well, how do I know you're not just, you know, part of big pharma? Like, try- and I literally have clients who are afraid that like they'll, they come to me specifically. Cause I told you I have the private pay model. They're like, I'm not using my insurance because I don't want any record of this, right? Now with me doing private pay, I don't bill insurance directly, so I don't even bother putting a diagnosis in a chart. Like every treatment plan I write just says no diagnosis. Now, if somebody is submitting their stuff to be reimbursed by their insurance, the insurance is gonna want a diagnosis and I'll have a conversation with the client first. And I usually give the most, the least, and that's the thing too, like in school, they teach you, okay, diagnosis is so important, you know, for being a therapist and everything like that. Literally the whole exam to become a licensed therapist in this state of Virginia is about diagnosing correctly. Everything is based around diagnosis, DSM. And then if you get into the field, you have to put the right code in order to get paid the money to do the service. And then it's like, are we working to help people or are we working to 
be part of a system. I I guess I'm somewhat unique in that I don't have to participate in that uh, because I'm going to get paid regardless because a client comes to me and they're like, okay, I want therapy. I don't have to give a diagnosis to an insurance company before they could be approved to come in and see me. Some insurance companies are set up like that where you actually have to give them a diagnosis before they'll ever pay you. And so the whole system is really interesting uh, and confusing. And I think anybody who's ever had health insurance um, and had to submit a claim or some sort of out-of-network reimbursement knows how frustrating it is. I mean, Whitney, you work in HR. You know how much of a mess it is. It's it's really difficult to navigate. But th- I think, you know, for people in general, but I think uh, given that our little group here today is of color, um, we already have our reasons for being mistrustful of the healthcare system. When we hear about these like side effects and, you know, everyone knows about the auntie whose son was put on some Adderall or something like that and had a bad reaction. And, you know, she swears off any sort of medication and stuff like that. We all have a story like that, right? We're very leery. And then, you know, it, I think, especially for people of color, it puts us in a position where we're scared or we're hell bent on not reaching out to anybody for help because we've seen historically how these systems can actually be predatory for us. So as we continue, um, were there any like things that y'all highlighted that jumped out at you or anything that you found interesting throughout this section? And this might be opening up a can of worms, but um, the whole, I think the kid's name was Julian, if I want to say with the, uh, the Catholic priest who was uh, that, that one kind of bothered me a little bit that um, obviously this is not a new concept. We've been hearing about the scandals in the churches forever, but the fact that there were so many like mental health providers that were willing to say it's complete BS that they can't recall these images out of nowhere and you shouldn't be able to charge these Catholic priests and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, where are these kids just coming up with these stories though? And people that don't know each other and their stories are matching up the places, the descriptions of the rooms, why do they match up then if these people are making it up? I think yeah, I talked about at the beginning how it was like heavy. Uh, the the section of the book uh, was very heavy to like get through and like the examples and stuff. But growing up, my grandma is like a devout Catholic. So I like, attended a catholic church growing up and stuff like that and even the church that we attended there was a whole scandal and accusations and stuff and from what i recollect like nothing ever happened to me and i never knew anybody who anything happened to but it was almost like they just like whisked the the priest off to a different church on a different part of the you know it's like oh they they went somewhere else here's your your new priest and it was almost like very much like swept under the rug but from your like interpretation, Nita, of like, oh, all of these mental health professionals kind of like all got together and like we're the expert um, on what happened here. And I'm just like, and I talked about this before. I'm like, here we are like giving these like, you know, for example, we talk about these behavioral diagnoses of like oppositional defiance, stuff like that. I was like, how many of these people actually talked to these freaking children and just said, hey, I'm going to, you know, like, 
build some rapport. Like now, granted, I do this for a living. I specialize in working with like adolescents and young adults and stuff like that. Like I can talk to a, a young person all day long, right? And I typically have a very easy time of just like bringing down the the like walls of like being cautious and stuff like that so that people can start talking. I just feel like it, it kind of comes back to as in most um, things where someone's a victim, like in, in this section talks about like sexual assaults and, you know, gang rapes and, and different things like that, incest, um, a lot of heavy stuff, but it comes back to not believing the victims. And th- I think in this case, it's using the quote science are using the institutions such as diagnosis or, quote, mental health or, quote, research to either validate someone's experience or to invalidate it. Um, and I think it does a lot of harm, especially when it comes to, you know, because I think any any sort of system or any sort of law or any sort of decision that's made, they want it to fit neatly into a box. Like we talked about the DSM, you have to have the check boxes, but it's like, there's not a, a box that's shaped like John Zell, right? I'm one of a kind. Um, we're trying to fit individual, unique experiences and people and lives into finite, like, um, rigid um, things. And if you don't fit in, part of your identity gets chopped off so that you can, like, be crammed into that box. And so that might mean, like, oh, yeah, you were uh, molested by the priests. Uh, based on our criteria, you weren't, so it's not valid. Uh, also, the whole like a repress—I th- I think it was something legal about like, well, a repressed memory can't be justified in a court of law or something like that. Um, I can only speak again because they can come for me. I'm uh, always keep my receipts. I'm great at documentation, but when I've been brought to court, first of all ironclad paperwork over here uh i'm 300 an hour if you want to drag my black ass into court it's going to cost you so don't don't do it uh, but if you if you must and you have the funds i'm also going to speak my fucking mind and uh oftentimes what people will do is they'll try to first of all they'll qualify me as say an expert witness or whatever and it's usually a lawyer who has never talked to me before um, and don't know what they're going to get into. And I actually think of it as sport because what they'll do is they'll try to, they'll, they'll like, uh, be like, Oh, what are your credentials? You know, what's your training, what's your experience working with such and such or whatever. And what they're trying to do is to use someone's mental illness as evidence as to why. And it's usually something way unrelated, like, Oh, this person has been known to have, uh, uh, bipolar in the past or something so they probably shouldn't have custody of their kids you know so something like that's a real big stretch but they didn't ask about my credential and my doctorate and petty and i love going to court because i make these like lawyers in these really expensive suits look and feel so stupid on the stand when i tell you it is the it is what i am most proud of the few times i've gotten to do that and when I tell you these white men who think that they were going to like get something out of me and feel some kind of way or like get an outcome based off of um, what they thought that they would like lead me into saying or something, they see me in the lobby and their faces are just red and they're like stomping around like you see sweat stains underneath their armpits. I And I feel like for me, 
that is like my ability to like use my knowledge and like love for like the field of mental health and stuff and like advocate for people. Cause at the same time that like we have these diagnoses, we have these like very real human experiences and stuff like that. Anytime someone knows something about somebody, um, they'll stigmatize it and try to weaponize it against them. And so while we can laugh and stuff like that and be like, oh, yeah, I made that lawyer look really stupid and their argument fell flat, right? Because uh, they were barking up the wrong tree of something they didn't know what the fuck they were talking about. At the same time, it's like we shouldn't have to advocate that people are treated like humans despite the fact that they have a mental health condition because of the broken systems that we have. So while I don't mind being up there and saying what I need to say to to get things done, it's still really, it kind of leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth because it's like, well, we know that trauma is real. Every single person on this earth has been through some sort of trauma. And, you know, people say, oh, a big T trauma or a little T trauma, like some traumas are worse than others. Like, but sometimes if you have a bunch of, say, little T traumas, such as, you know, a little T trauma could be like, oh, your mom is late picking you up from preschool one day and you get scared. Okay, that's a little T trauma, right? But if your mom is late picking you up every single day for three months, those little T traumas start to add up into a big T trauma. And then we get into like the attachment stuff that was talked about in this section. And, um, or a big T trauma could be, you know, this isn't to make light of it, but when I'm explaining it to people, I'm like a big T trauma could be like gang raped in an alley, right? It's like a very big, huge event that is everyone would agree that it's a, a incredibly traumatic experience. Right. But then I see a lot on um, social media about this, but we also have to navigate the politics of like people try to play the trauma Olympics. So it's like, oh, well, I have five big T traumas. Um, and then someone else will come in and be like, well, I'll raise you uh, my six big T traumas. And, and I have 20 of these little T traumas. So clearly, you know, and they almost use it as a way to validate the importance of what they have to say and i and i think uh, at least what i'm learning as i like read through this book is that at the end of the day we have to come back to our common humanity um we have to come back to first of all talking to people and listening to people and not trying to fit people into a box because people don't belong in boxes so that's that's kind of where i'm at so I wanted to, um, and I had mentioned this before, go back to the attachment types. I think between pages 118 and 119, it did a good job. I kind of highlighted throughout. I identified four attachment types. I I don't know if this is inclusive uh, or like uh, the, the whole list, but there's avoidant attachment and they broke that down into basically, or first of all, secure attachment is what we should, I guess, aim for. Um, in a perfect world, meaning you're well-adjusted, you kind of can be independent, but you can also bond with other people with few problems. Like you can basically cope um, between your nature and nurture pretty easily. So that's the gold standard. And then you have avoidant attachment, which is summarized as dealing with stuff, but not feeling. So you can do the logistics, but you don't have the emotional connection uh, that's basically, uh, you've heard of people like being left-brained or right-brained, 
they're these are like left brain people. And then you also have the anxious or ambivalent attachment style, which is feeling but not dealing. That's your right brain people, right? They're the emotive, uh, the emotions people, but they don't get any, they can't do anything with those emotions. So it's kind of like you're, you're stuck on one side, you can't, you can't put the two together. And then another one they said was like a disorganized uh, attachment style where it's basically you don't know who is safe, who you can trust, you know, and you kind of flip flop back and forth between like people can be trusted, people can't be trusted. And we see this a lot with uh, some of the personality disorders. So those are the four that I, I guess, saw that were kind of concisely summarized there. But I was interested in y'all's thoughts on the attachment styles. Um, and if you made any connections there. For some reason, I always remember this commercial. Um, the, I can't even remember what they were trying to say, sell, but they said um, kids pretty much learn all their like emotional well-being from the ages of zero to five. So, and it, I'm sure they were trying to sell like a Disney vacation or something stupid, but to understand that when you have parents that are very, very young and don't necessarily understand how to parent yet, you sometimes see these kids become bullies. You sometimes see these kids do all this stuff and it's like, their parents weren't ready to be parents yet. I don't think anybody it probably is ever ready to be a parent, but when you are like 15, 16, you're not ready to raise a kid. You don't even have all your own stuff together. So I can imagine that a lot of people in the education system are seeing the effects of dealing with a lot of this, unfortunately. But I mean, what can you really do about it? Even when they were talking about the monkeys and seeing them have a lot of the same qualities as the humans, like, I don't know if it's a way to like fix it, but so much. As a parent of a young child uh, of three years old, uh, I am looking at attachment in a new way now than when I did when I was, say, an undergrad, like taking those developmental psychology courses. And it's always interesting, like, and you'll even read, like, if if you read any sort of, like, uh, work by, like, a psychiatrist or somebody who's an expert in mental health, oftentimes they, like, do like observational studies with their own children and stuff like that. A lot of actually psychological research is based on like scientists who were studying their own kids, which is flawed science anyway, but that's neither here nor there. But like, as I was like, I like read part of this in the paperback book. And then like, I listened to part of it on the audible, like as I was like going to pick my daughter up from preschool today. And my, my daughter has some, um, some speech and development delays that we're learning are very much related to uh, a hearing issue. She need, needs to get uh, next, I think, is her uh, adenoids removed because her ears keep... Basically, she can't hear nothing. It sounds like she's underwater. And so it's it's just an ongoing nightmare. And I told you, dealing with the healthcare system is quite disappointing. But uh, anyway, when we stop at like a stop sign for more than a couple of seconds or a uh like a stoplight she tends to tantrum she doesn't like when the car is not moving and so because i was like listening to this book like on my way to like go pick her up and then like i'm at the stoplight which you never like it's you will stop at the stoplight it's just every time like it's it she knows certain ones it's like we're not even stopped yet and she knows we're gonna stop kind of thing like kids are really smart and then she starts tantruming and then i'm just like okay 
from what I've like, you know, read and heard in this, uh, children need to know that they're safe, right? So I just, you know, I have like the little mirror that is like faced at her, you know, uh, like attached to my rear view mirror. So I can kind of angle that and she can see eye contact, right? But I just like reach my hand back and I was like, do you want to hold my hand? And then she's like tantruming still or whatever. And then she like grabs onto one of my fingers and she's kind of like half crying, like tantruming and like looking around. And then like, this is a long light too. And so, you know, I'm just kind of like letting her have my hand or whatever, but I'm like kind of thinking about these attachment styles too, because once she realizes I'm there and that she's okay and that she doesn't have to, you know, she started like self-soothing. She started sucking her thumb. And at one point she like flung my hand away as like, I don't need this anymore kind of thing. And I was, and I, because I, you know, I'm like being mindful of like, okay, well don't show her that you feel some kind of way about this or whatever, just remain neutral. It's like offer, offer the, um, the soothing and the consolation if she wants it. And when she doesn't want it anymore, respect her boundary. Right. And so when she flung my hand away, I'm thinking in my head, like, well, you're rude. Uh, but then after that, I'm like, you don't need my hand anymore. And then she's just sucking her thumb and she doesn't want to be bothered with me. I was like, okay, I'm gonna put my hand back, you know, on the wheel now. Um, and then the light turned green and, you know, we, we went about our day, but it was kind of a interesting observation of, and I'll read some of the, the sections that I like took on the different attachment styles. Cause obviously we're not going to go in depth uh, in, into all of what they had to say about it. Cause it's from a book, but um, it was just interesting to see how like she had some of the, like kind of the anxious, like, you know, what's going to happen kind of thing. And I, I, try to empathize like imagine if you go through your world where and she's been tantruming a lot because she's basically will have screaming fits because she's frustrated nobody can hear like or she can't hear herself and people she can't speak like the rest of the kids because she can't she's not able to hear what she needs to hear in order to interpret the information so she's communicating with the outside world with what she has you know which is really frustrating because it's like take these fucking adenoids out and like fix fix the hearing issue so that she can like because I know she's intelligent and I know that like she can just give a look and you know exactly what's going on. Um, it's just there's a health issue that we're working through the healthcare system to try to figure out. But it was just interesting to see like okay she has some of that anxious like okay I'm at a stoplight I'm not in control I see the back of my dad's head so. I can't communicate that I don't like when the car stops, you know, um, but then to also as a parent and also as a person who studies human behavior to be able to see like, oh, let me apply kind of a principle of this book that I'm literally listening to as I'm like having this interaction with her, right? Like the audible is in the car, right? And then I'm just like, do you want my hand? And just to see it like play out, but then also as a parent, not as a you know, as a therapist or a person who studies psychology to just see like, she does have secure attachment because she knows that no matter what, she's going to be okay. Because one, she's tucked safely in her seat, you know, but also she knows that she has access to me via that, that mirror that we have where we can see each other. Um, But also I'm only a arms reach away, you know? Um, And so it's kind of, you know, I'm not trying to be all sappy or anything, but it was just an interesting 
like observation to see that. So with that in mind, I want to read a couple of uh, little snippets from between pages 116 and 117. I'm not reading it in full, but I, I've highlighted a few things that might make this make sense to the listener. Uh, so quote, securely attached children usually become pleasant playmates and have lots of self-affirming experiences with their peers. Having learned to be in tune with other people, they tend to notice subtle changes in voices and faces and to adjust their behavior accordingly. Uh, I just gave an example of that. They learn to live within a shared understanding of the world, and they are likely to become valued members of the community. The need for attachment never lessens. Most humans, uh, most human beings simply cannot tolerate being disengaged from others for any length of time. People who cannot connect through work, friendships, or family usually find other ways of bonding, as through illness, lawsuits, or family feuds. Anything is preferable to that godforsaken sense of irrelevance and alienation. And they actually give uh, an example here about a person who would basically just break into people's houses and set off the alarm so that the police would show up and they would have someone who recognized them. So I kind of gave an example of like, okay, how securely attached children do. And then on the flip side, people who aren't securely attached, um, who basically can't tolerate, because um, secure, secure attachment doesn't mean that and, and the term attachment doesn't mean you're always around other people, but attachment means how do you cope in the world, whether you're with people or not with people? Are you able to self-soothe, self-regulate, or do you freak the fuck out when something is out of your control, right? Um, so that second example there was talking about that. And then it goes on to say, children have a biological instinct to attach. They have no choice. Whether their parents or caregivers are loving and caring or distant and sensitive, rejecting or abusive, children will develop a coping style based on their attempt to get at least some of their needs met, end quote. So this kind of brings it all together with what we were talking about before. It's like, you know, you've got these diagnoses that'll label a kid as, say, oppositional defiant or whatever. That's a label describing the symptoms um, on the surface, it's not getting at the why. And of course, why is a rabbit hole question because, you know, you'll never have a full answer to you ask why about something. But we're we're humans trying to get our needs met. You're not a person with, say, you know, a person might have a diagnosis of, say, schizophrenia or um, something like that. But they're a person... D deserving of dignity, respect, and even if they're acting bizarre or something, they're a person trying to get their needs met. Nice little plug of why law enforcement shouldn't be showing up to mental health crises, but that's neither here nor there. And I think it was you, Whitney, last time who had mentioned something about um, wanting to understand the connection between, say, like, um, uh, I want to say like pain disorders and stuff like that and trauma. They actually did talk about that in um, this section it was saying uh page 128 there was the character or not character but the example uh marilyn it said uh the the doctor had said she was the third person that year whom i'd suspected having an incest history and who was who had was then diagnosed with an autoimmune disease a disease in which the body starts attacking itself and that's that's an end quote right there but um it, it, the the author goes on to talk about how there are studies to show that like people who have been traumatized 
often will then develop these um, psychosomatic symptoms because sometimes like uh and i and i'm not a science like medical person so my understanding is limited but i have a lot of clients who've been through um either several small t traumas like recurrent like complex ptsd or a, a big event and they develop these um, like these pain disorders. They develop these situations where basically your central nervous system or your uh, certain body system is like attacking itself. It thinks that there's a foreign substance. And then you're dealing with like pain and flare ups on top of the actual like trauma and the mental health diagnosis. It's a clusterfuck. So I, I did want to come back to that because I know you had mentioned interest in that. Uh, did you gain any additional insights on that, Whitney or uh, Nita, that you wanted to share? Um, I mean, I thought it was like kind of like a aha moment from like what I had brought up last time. But I think my curiosity was more so around what do you do, right? When If you recognize like that connection between, in her case, like potentially like an incest moment. Um, or like a, a rape or something like that. And then where your body, quote unquote, goes to like attack itself or like you develop like these pain conditions. Like what, what is like the treatment for that? What do you do? Books like this are just the tip of the iceberg, I think, into even just like scratching the surface of awareness of why trauma does what it does to even like, I mean, a lot of us are reading this book and we're like, oh my God, aha, like, this makes sense. Like we're just like having our eyes open to some of this. And I'm saying that in my own experience, somebody who like has worked in the field for years, right. And treats people with trauma on a regular basis. I'm going to keep it a hundred with you and say, I don't fucking know. You know, we've talked about different, you know, there's also the holistic treatment approaches. I mean, I just got, I just wrote a blog post about my particular, like, things that I do to manage my anxiety, but that that list is probably inadequate to probably most people. And as I once I hit publish on it, I was like, oh shit, I didn't even talk about like the importance of sleep, right? Like I talked about medication, I talked about therapy, I talked about journaling, I talked about massage therapy, I talked about um being creative, I talked about exercise. Like those are those help, but they don't holistically like completely cure me. A person uh, and in this this book, they talked about like uh, there was the one woman who well, there was a couple of examples. There was the woman who well, I guess was in a group or something, and upon hearing other people talk about their experiences, she realized that she had been assaulted or the victim of incest. And but then it was like she had no had no ability to access the memory uh because of you know we talked last time about dissociation dissociation is a big part and then um it's like well if your body goes offline and you can't even retrieve the information it's like if you have uh your wallet with cash in it and someone robs you and you don't have the cash you don't have money right like there's no there's nothing i can't what can i do for that like i can't get you can't do anything if you don't have that money right um, and so even our awareness of what went wrong or the why or how did we get here is so uh, foggy for some people. Some people, it's clear as day. They know exactly what, where it started, where it came from, and what happened afterwards. 
Um, but as far as the treatment of it, like I said uh, earlier in this episode, we're working with very fragmented systems. I mean, the healthcare system, the uh, private insurance system, the the like wealth and um, socioeconomic disparities, racism. If we haven't mentioned that already, it's a thing, people. And as far as treatment is concerned, not all people are created equally. Like, and I'm not gonna, I can't speak to myself because I'm just a crazy ass person who they gave a counseling license to who just happens to somehow do good work. Uh, but I'm EMDR trained. I would say as a pithy answer to your question, EMDR might help, but real strong proponents of EMDR uh, might say, oh yeah, EMDR. And I know this author is going to talk about EMDR in here, that that when we get to the actual like treatments and outcomes, that's going to be a big part of it. But even EMDR, uh, we had somebody in the Prince Harry um, uh, book club who talked about how they've done EMDR and they just hit a wall certain things they're not going to access because they're they're not ready for it they may have walled it off forever and they can't ever get to it and so again i i give half answers and such as human nature we don't have the answers but what do you do when you know that you have trauma and how do you fix it my own i can only go back to myself using myself as the first case study um from which i base all of my clinical work from and it's like throw everything you got at it and fight like hell to have the best quality of life that you can with the resources available to you learn as much as you can, but also rest as much as you can, because while you can learn and you can read and you can get every audible, you can get every book, you can get, try every medication. You could try every therapist. You could try every uh, therapeutic uh, approach. You can try every type of journal. They got bullet journaling. They got freeform journaling. They got electronic ones. They got apps. They've got neurofeedback. They've got uh, all sorts of shit. Massage therapy. Like I could literally probably spend hours just reading off different things or doing Google searches of something that says that it will cure your trauma. I know it sounds somewhat like incomplete coming from a therapist uh, who's trained in trauma, but like, I also have to be honest and say, if I knew the answer to fix everything, I would have done it for my goddamn self, first and foremost. I'd be like, fuck y'all, I need to fix me first. And then I'll come back and help <laughs> other people. But until then, uh, I think you just throw everything you can at it, do the best you can. And it's kind of frustrating because we think, oh, it's 2023. We were supposed to be so evolved and technologically advanced and allegedly like cars and shit are driving themselves and whatnot. But we're still humans. We still got a lot of work to do. And as per many a previous conversation, the the trajectory of humanity is quite bleak sometimes. So I say do the best you can. Um, Self-care, rest, learn as much as you can, but also be patient and kind with yourself. So it's tough. I think when you like identify like a trauma and then the way that trauma comes in, it just kind of drops in your lap, so to speak. And the majority of the time it's it's not your fault and it, you're just stuck there like holding like the bag of shit like what do i do with this how do i make this go away or not make this go away but how do i work through this and 
you do everything you can. Like you said, like you exercise, like you drink water, you eat well, like you sleep, you go to therapy, you take your medication, you journal, you meditate, da 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 da. But then it's it's still there, you know, sitting on your shoulder, like, hey, I'm still here. So it's just like, what what can you do in this instance? And it's so unfair. Y'all heard me venting last week about how I was doing my HSA receipts and how I just like had a little breakdown. I'm like, it's so damn expensive to have anxiety and it's not fair. I didn't sign up for this. Nita, you had something. I was just going to say, as people of color, I don't know if we will ever really be able to completely get rid of trauma. It's so embedded in our DNA from our ancestors going through slavery, mistreatment, Jim Crow. It's just so much stuff that we constantly carry. Even like having to interact with the police on a daily basis. Sometimes you don't know with that interaction, you'll make it home to see your family again. And we carry so much. And this is like, you don't want to talk about it all the time, but like you have to make time for yourself to talk about it with people that understand because you can't constantly just carry it. But it's one of those things like, what can we really do about it? And I'm glad you brought that up in our DNA. Uh, the author here talked about epigenetics. And I actually did, I want to say it was either last summer or the summer before. I did a series on uh, Dr. Joy DeGry's book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, and in that book, she talks about uh, basically generational PTSD, um, how, you know, we talked about it in episode one of this series where trauma changes your DNA or no, not your, not your DNA. Trauma changes the literal makeup of your brain, the wiring, the chemicals and everything. So if it's changing your brain, it's also changing your DNA. And then we're passing that down. So the study of epigenetics, again, I'm not a scientist. I do not uh, claim to know the nuances of this. But from my understanding, trauma, all of us here are people of color. Our trauma has been passed down to us from our ancestors. and enslavement, racism, experiences that we have, it goes back to the nature versus nurture. If our nature and our DNA is predisposed to being hypervigilant or uh, having a start, a, a overactive fight, flight, or freeze response based on what our ancestors have had to experience, and then we have to live in the land of colonization of which our systems are based on those systems of oppression, such as our law enforcement system, which is derived from that of slave catchers. Uh, and then we have to encounter them. And our DNA is saying, flee. But if you flee, you get shot in your ass. That it, we're going to continue to be traumatized. And unfortunately, as a traumatized person who was passed down trauma, I pass that uh, genetics of trauma to my child and my child has to grow up in the same or seemingly worsening world that I'm growing up in and the cycle repeats itself until something changes. So if you haven't read that book, Nita, I recommend uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by uh, Dr. Joy DeGry. And there's a lot of uh, uh, interviews and stuff that she's done as well on it. Um, it's very good. But uh yeah, the, the nature versus nurture and how the environments are going to impact our genetics. I think that there's some ignorant ass motherfuckers 
who like to say that we're being, we're exaggerating and that we're making everything about race. But if you need, of, of course, sciences can be invalidated just because uh, we can make it outlawed that real facts are even taught in schools now. You know, not, truth is not truth because I can just write a law saying that that's not true anymore. Like nothing up isn't, uh, up is down and left is backwards and nothing like we keep moving the goalposts nothing nothing that's supposed to make sense makes sense anymore so um for the three of us in this particular space here who to my understanding we have a general grasp on common sense right the science that is presented to us in this book written by a psychiatrist um is saying that trauma changes our brain um, other research is showing us that trauma impacts our DNA, and numerous research is showing that racism, systemic oppression, and all of these have health, emotional, social outcomes for people. So with that understanding, we know that it's an uphill battle. And then, like Whitney had just said, she's like, well, what do we do about it? And I was like, well, to quote you again, you're carrying this bag of shit that you've been given. And as a parent of a young person, I actually did empty the diaper genie this morning, uh, which you, it's bags on the inside and you take it out and you tie it off. That was a great metaphor, Whitney, the bag of shit. And then it's like, well, what do I do with this? Because it stinks. It's heavy. Uh, it's expensive. And um, there's not really a better solution other than to throw it out and know that it's going to fill up again right because you're you're working with a lot of things that it doesn't make sense i you know for the sake of like a podcast i would love to like end on like the warm fuzzy like you know sunshine and rainbows but i think we we kind of end these kinds of conversations and like heavy topics with a big question mark but for the sake of trying to find some hope and to not like you know have people click off this podcast and be like nope depressing uh awareness is half the battle so if we're learning something um if we read books because i promise you a bunch of these dumb motherfuckers on the internet who have so much to say about what is best for our children and our education system and politics and law enforcement and health systems and stuff like that ain't read a fucking book in a good damn minute i don't know maybe the solution to our problems is for people to read again it's shade but it's true not everyone can read well so we're back at square one mm. can you elaborate on that because i feel like <laughs> there's nuance um not everybody is a skilled reader i should say and i'll add to that not everybody we, we can read the words but critical <laughs> thinking sometimes needs to be taught and not all institutions of higher learning if you make it there or if you have the privilege because we also have to acknowledge privilege and education the uh scientific method and tenets of critical thinking such as like i don't know check your fucking source are not standard uh equipment out here in these uh internet streets i try my best not to argue with trolls on the internet but more recently, uh, I got into it with a particular individual because they made a blanket statement 
and we've if you listen to this podcast i i am a black father um and we've talked about uh, my own experiences of being a mixed race black father with a uh, fair-skinned uh mixed race child right and kind of the nuances of that but a person was on the internet and they made a statement about like oh, Black fathers, uh, such and such, I don't know, my eyes glossed over. And my simple, I, I highlighted what they said, and I responded, and I said, what's your source? And uh, someone who I wasn't speaking to commented on it, and they wanted to argue with me about, what's your source? And my first, when I typed it in originally, I didn't hit send, and I was like, well, first off, bitch-ass motherfucker who I wasn't speaking to, if you looked at my profile picture, of which you don't have one because you're a coward and don't have a profile picture or a real name on this website. You can see that I'm a black father because I'm a fucking black person holding my child in my goddamn profile pictures. That's my source first and foremost, but I also know how to read a book. But it was more so I kept it tame and I said, um, oh, hi, person I wasn't speaking to. You have a lovely day. That's what I said. I was like, I'm not doing that. But going back to what you said, Whitney, yeah, not everybody knows how to read and not everybody knows how to critically think. I think I added that part to it. But is that, am I picking up what you were putting down? You're picking up what I was putting down. Okay, good. Usually when I go back, I'm like, ah, I have to edit out so much. And then I listen to it through again. And I'm like, I said, what the fuck I said. (laughs) I just have to click that little box that says explicit content and I don't need to warn anybody. So. It's going to have a big old E right next to the title of the thing. And I'm like, well, if your kids are in the car. That's your problem. They might <laughs> learn something. Well, I don't want it to go on too long, but let me end on this because we talked about the DSM a lot. Did y'all find it funny that the DSM, it literally says in the pre the, the preamble or whatever to the DSM, I don't know what version it was. I think it was the third one. It was like, this book should not be used to determine insurance reimbursement or is basically like, don't use this thing as a decision-making or as a definite tool. It's an imperfect thing. And what did the healthcare system do, but do the opposite and said, we're going to make this the entire basis for everything that we do. So again, bitches who don't read. I just thought that was interesting. I just, I, I, I was like, it literally said, do not use this to make any blanket decision. Like, don't, this is just, we're trying, we're trying to make some sense here. Don't take it too seriously. And literally that's what they did. And that's the system that we work in. So I just wanted y'all's reactions on that real quick. Like to me, so you put this book out there and in this book, he's basically saying, oh, we do it so we can make money off of the DSM, right? And I'm just like, if that's your whole point, you're just putting people in boxes so you can charge more money every time you update it. Like, oh, we're going to run another update. So then every mental health professional that provides services has to buy the update because it's like, like you said, it's like the Bible for what you guys are doing. It reminds me of like the college board and the SATs. Like, you don't care about these kids. You're just trying to make money. It's... I don't know. Such a scam. (laughs) Scam likely. When the text revision came out, I looked at the price. (laughs) I remember I bought the DSM-5. It was a purple one. 
I bought it when I was in grad school, so it was required. Like you had to have it as one of your textbooks or where, which is why, why why I had it. Uh, but when the text revision came out, I was already in private practice. I was already on a private paid model where I wasn't diagnosing that much anyway. And I was like, I'm not spending hundreds of dollars on this fucking book. First of all, it's huge. Second of all, I'm not going to really use it that much. So I just got the 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 desk reference one, which is like literally none of the extra like because they all put a whole it, it's a thick bitch like it's a thick book and to the point where the spine will start tearing if you use it enough because it's so heavy it's too much but i just got like the little thin it's probably so i think it's it's smaller than this book that we're reading right now and literally it gives the diagnosis the bullet points of what it is and the code it's just short sweet and to the point um, and so if, if I have like a, a situation where I do need to like be on top of like what it's called or whatever for a certain purpose, I can refer to it. But truly the thing, this new version is like a shiny, like teal greenish kind of color. It literally just sits on my desk to like catch the light. Um, I've like flipped through it just to know, but very much a scam. Uh, and you notice how it's the DSM-5 text revision. That means that a DSM-6 is probably coming. And this author said the, the fifth one was not that different from the fourth one. The fourth one was problematic. The fifth one's problematic. And they flat out, t- he flat out told us they left out something that could have been really life-changing and revolutionary. Why? Because if we, we could look at any system. Like, why do we have mass incarceration? It's a capitalist system it makes profit that's why it hasn't ended yet it's slavery repackaged right why do we have inadequate diagnosis in a healthcare system that is has to work a certain way because there's a way to monopolize on people's benefits and money and to allocate services to those who have the means to access them everything can come back to business and i'm not shitting on capitalism in general because we got to play the game otherwise we lose right but yeah in conclusion whitney put it best when she said we're just holding this bag of shit and we're like well what do i do with this and as evidenced by what i did with the diaper pail this morning you take the bag of shit outside throw it in the dumpster and uh you'll be doing the same damn thing in a couple of days because them's the rules God help me when I go edit this episode and try to make it digestible to the to the general public. For next week's, we're going to be reading uh, chapter 13 through chapter 17. If you're following along in the paperback book, that is page 205 to 297. So thank you for listening and catch us back next week for part three. Uh, but until then, take care. Thank you for listening. Before you go, consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways. You can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode's show notes. You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.